Before I begin this morning, I want to mention two things. Uh, first of all, I am deeply grateful to the, I believe it was about 60 people uh, that came out to help uh, my wife and I move into our new house. Uh, that was tremendous. 60 people, uh, we easily took up every parking space down the street, and uh, it was great. And it was done in the rain. Uh, this was above and beyond the call of duty. So thank you to all of you that, uh, that were there, a part of it. I think there was at least three churches that were represented, actually, uh, to be a part of that crew. So thank you for doing that. Also, this last week, secondly, I and uh, my wife, we had the privilege of celebrating the 4th of July Berrien Springs style. I did not know there were that many flavor of pickles. Uh, this, this was a new thing for us in there. And we also were blessed to have our own Evergreen Pathfinder Club present and very much accounted for at the celebration. Uh, they were selling food earlier before these pictures were taken, and good food indeed. My, my, my wife and I both had a veggie burger with a pickle and an apple juice, and it was very good. And then they marched in the parade complete with drum corps. Uh, they did a great job of representing our church to our community. Did you know that our Pathfinder Club is headed to Gillette, uh, yay verily, next year for the International Pathfinder Camporee? Uh, I have had the privilege in the past of being the club director for two, uh, back, back in those days it was Oshkosh, uh, two Oshkoshes, and uh, I am utterly convinced that to send our Pathfinders to Gillette this time around uh, is one of the best things we can do to ingrain in their minds that Jesus loves them and that they are part of a worldwide movement of God. Uh, it is a great thing. So, if a Pathfinder comes to you and says, could you please give me money for Gillette? Say, I'd be happy to, and empty the contents of your wallet into their hands. Uh, we have about 180 people, I believe, uh, that will be headed there, and uh, we want to make sure that they can get there safe and sound and back. Uh, well done, Pathfinders. A story. And this story also takes place at Forest Lake Academy. Now, I do have stories from other portions of the world. Uh, we, will, we will get to those later on. But th this story just, just seemed to fit what we are talking about. So, I was a senior at Forest Lake Academy, and it was a, a sultry Sunday afternoon in the guy's dorm. Now, they say that the devil's, uh, the, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. You could just put boys' dormitory on Sunday afternoon, and you'd have a good parallel there. Uh, we were bored. There was not much happening. We'd already had open gym, and no one was much in the mood for homework. I was in the third floor restroom of the dormitory, washing my hands, and to my right was a, a fellow student who lived on the second floor. Now, now why the, the, this person was in the third floor restroom, I will never know, but I do know what he did next. For some reason, as all wisdom drained from his mind on the Sunday afternoon, he took his hands and he ran it through the stream of water coming out the faucet where he was washing his hands, and he splashed me with water. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I am a third-floor dormitory resident. This is my restroom. Nobody splashes me unchallenged, and so I splashed him back. He didn't take kindly to that. He turned the water on a little more, and he splashed me with more water. I turned on both barrels, and I splashed him back. 
And then he reached for his, his, his giant blue Forest Lake Academy cup and he filled it with water and he splashed me with it. It was war. I ran out of the bathroom, raising the war cry, pounding on doors. The doors opened up. Guys came out. They quickly realized what was happening, and it was game on. People were going for cups of any size. Uh, Wet towels were being used. Squirty bottles that we use for ironing. Down the hall and down the stairs to second floor, just to make our point. Well, second floor wasn't going to take that sitting down. They reached for their cups and towels as well, and pretty soon, the place was starting to get a little damp. At one point... A friend of mine decided, hey, let's get the wastebasket in your room. And so, you know, a wastebasket about this big, about that tall. And we went into the shower. We turned it on. We filled it up. We went downstairs to the second floor. And, oh, we got him good with that one. We were so pleased with our success that we quickly went back up to third floor, reloaded, came back down to the second floor landing in the stairwell. Now, you need to picture that this dormitory has since been demolished. And I'm not taking any responsibility for that fact. There's a, there was no other things that came off of that stairwell. It was purely to get from one floor to the next. So no offices or rooms off of it. Double doors at each landing to go in. We came from third floor. We went down to second floor. We're on the landing there. My friend is holding one side of the, of the, of the waste basket filled with water. I'm holding the other. And we are going to get whoever walks through that door. And then we hear a sound. And for any third floor resident, we knew what that sound was. It was the sound of the third floor door to the stairwell opening. And I thought to myself, oh no, if there are second floor guys that are armed with water, gravity is now on their side. And we looked up, my friend and I looked up. And there came a tsunami of water pouring down on top of us. The guys from Second had taken a full-size trash can and gone into the the, the shower stalls there, filled it up. It couldn't have been totally full. That would have been too heavy. Maybe halfway full. That's a lot of water. And just as we looked up, they poured it over and we were, it it was running out of our shoes. We were completely and totally wet And the second floor doors in front of us opened, and there stood Dean Wolcott. (laughs) It was like magic. His timing could not have been worse. There we were. You got to picture this now. We are are completely and totally wet. There is literally water still flowing off of that landing there. We have a full bucket of water in front of us, and Dean is standing there, and strangely, he looks unhappy. He had been apparently on the first floor in his office there in the lobby, as he often was on a Sunday afternoon, and when someone came and said, hey, Dean, there's water flowing in from the stairwell into the lobby. He must have thought there was a leak in a main or something like that, and he was going to find it. He had gone into second floor and was not pleased with what he found. He was coming out to find out further, and there we stand, completely drenched. And at that moment, my, my first thought, my first thought was, okay, look dry. <laughs> Just look dry. Oh, I'm try, I'm looking dry, looking dry. Because I was, th- my, my instinctive response, and so was my friend, same thing. How can we get out of this? How can we somehow make it look 
like we are not responsible for what is happening here. The water's dripping up. Dean, pay no attention to these things. This bucket in our hands, we are just clean people. This is for washing. Yes, this is what's happening, right? None of this is our responsibility, even though every sign all around us, dripping off of us, said otherwise. Pause that picture, if you would, please. Just, just keep that picture of, of, of two high school seniors in a stairwell, dripping wet, holding a bucket of water. Keep that image in your mind for just a few minutes now, because we're going to come back to that. Right now, I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 5, please. Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Mark 5, verse 1. While you're looking that up, just a little review of where we have been. We have been looking at this series called The Shot of a Lifetime. And last week we learned that the shot of a lifetime is not athletic achievement or, or gaining great wealth or fame or any of those things. Those all have their place, but the real shot of a lifetime is coming to know Jesus Christ as your personal friend and Savior. That, that, that is ultimately the only thing that matters. It's the most important thing, the highest thing that any human can ever aspire to. The shot of a lifetime is knowing Jesus Christ personally. We further looked at unity, this, this sky-high call to unity that Jesus gives to us. And we looked at this, this high level, working as one person, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, etc. This kind of unity is one of the great stepping stones to helping the shot of a lifetime become a reality in the lives of others. Now, we looked at this text here, John 17, verse 22 and 23. This is so short. Let's read this together. One, two, three. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, Jesus came and we're to have unity so that we can tell other people about Jesus, that he loves them, that he came from heaven, that he's God himself, that he died and lived again for their forgiveness. In other words, the main purpose of unity for all of the benefits that it does bring to us individually and corporately, the main purpose is to make disciples for Jesus. That's the springboard. That's what Jesus says in his word. And now here in part two, let's take this unity discipleship connection one step further. Uh, Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. They, meaning Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake, so this is at Galilee, to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Pause there, please. Demon possession is the worst state that a sinner can reach. 
Because there, there are decisions that must be made along the way. No one accidentally becomes possessed. Okay. There are choices that you must make along the way to, to not just uh, you know, enjoy sin, but to embrace it. And if you do that long enough, this is where it leads. This man is at the lowest possible state that any human being can achieve. And there's actually some good news in that. You know, if you read the Bible long enough, one of the great things about doing so is that sooner or later, you will find someone who is having a worse day than you are. That's true, isn't it? That's why all these stories are here, to, to show us, to be examples to us. And one of the things that this shows, even with what little we have read so far of this story, it shows us very clearly, it doesn't matter how bad or how long or how low you have gone, Jesus can help. And if you are willing, he will help. And here's how we know. Verse 9. Mark 5, verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, this, this is an astonishing scene. I think sometimes we miss it. If you've had familiarity with us, you know, sometimes, you know, familiarity breeds boredom, right? For these disciples, this was an astonishing thing. There's been a lot of Jesus movies made over the years. Some of them actually get this scene right. Desire of Ages describes that when Jesus and the disciples got out of the boat, they're walking down the beach. The demoniac heads right towards them. You're running, yelling, whatever. The disciples take off like rats from a sinking ship. Because in their culture, and not just Jewish culture, any culture of that time, if somebody was demon-possessed and they were coming for you, the only recourse you had was to run away. You, you may remember the story Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they got in this debate that they were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, well, listen, if I cast them out by the power of Satan, then who do you cast them out by? And the answer was, they don't. They couldn't. The only thing you could do was run away. So, so picture it now. Jesus steps out there. The disciples are with him. The demoniac comes. The disciples flee. And Jesus, one guy standing on the beach, doesn't budge. And these demons that have caused so much tragedy in that culture at that time, Ellen White describes it as, as one of the darkest times in human history, Spirituality was an all-time low. Demon possession was sky high. Demon possession that no one could do anything but run away from. And Jesus is standing there, not breaking a sweat. He doesn't even flinch. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there is no problem too big in your life for Christ to overcome. The devil is a beaten foe. Jesus says just a few words and, and the demons are, are groveling at his feet, begging him to play nice. <laughs> Whatever problem that you have, Jesus can solve it. There is no fear that is too strong for Christ to break in your life. There is no obstacle too big for Jesus to remove or to destroy or to provide passage around because on the cross, Jesus said, it is what? Finished. The power of sin had been broken. And whatever problem you have, Jesus is ready. He is not surprised and he has all that you need to solve it. Now, if we had the time, we would read the next six or seven verses. I'll just summarize. 
Uh, Jesus does command the demons to go out. They go into a herd of pigs. The pigs go over a cliff. They drown. The owners are upset. They go back to the village. They come back. Everybody's upset. They want Jesus to leave, and Jesus is a gentleman. He will not come in where he's not wanted. The power of choice is powerful. Be careful how you use it. And he gets into the boat. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, this is, this is to leave, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. <laughs> to which, under other circumstances, if I had been there, I would have been tempted to say, Jesus, you must be joking. This is not for real, right? I mean, talk about an unlikely candidate for witnessing for God. Why on earth, Jesus, would you make this guy responsible for sharing his faith with others? I mean, he's been a Christian for what, five minutes? Maybe an hour? I mean, how how long does it take for, you know, rumors to go to the village, they come back and they get him a set of clothes? I don't know. It hasn't been long. It's not like he's got a, a rich history to draw from. Speaking of his history... His background, the worst of the worst. Probably has zero public speaking skills. And what, after being a demoniac, is he some sort of interpersonal genius? I mean, after practicing barking at tombstones and broken chains, is he now going to give glowing, eloquent gospel presentations and coordinate big tent evangelism under the swaying cedars of Lebanon? I think not. In fact, among all the followers of Jesus present that day, the healed demoniac seems like the absolute worst candidate of all to be asked to go and make disciples. And yet that is exactly what Jesus asks him to do. The most unlikely discipler gets sent out to make disciples. The lesson to my eye seems crystal clear. It is true, it is absolutely true that we are called to make disciples here in unity, in harmony with one another, in community, as a team, but as it turns out, great teams work best and unity can be at its highest when each team member does their part. Even the healed demoniac was called to make disciples, and so is each one of us. Now, this to me raises a very important question that needs to be asked and answered. Why? We're all okay, present company accepted. I've seen some Christians, I don't know if I would trust them holding pocket lint, okay? And and now we're going to send them out to to make disciples for Jesus? Why would God ask people like me, like you, why would he ask us as individuals to make disciples? Can't the specialists do it? I mean, those that are really good at, at discipleship, why can't they do it? Why us? I think the Scriptures give at least... Three very good answers to that question. Number one, God never asks us to do something that it would be better for us not to do. You know, I would have thought there would have been at least one amen with that one. 
I'll read that one more time. I caught you by surprise. Let's try this again. God never asks us to do something that it would be better for us not to do. Oh, good. Good, good, good. I thought we were going to have to start over at the beginning here. It is a bit of a mind twister at first, isn't it? Because the idea, if something seems difficult or if it's challenging or maybe it's just downright unpleasant, immediately we think this is bad. We live in a culture that spends most of its time trying to avoid pain. And if there's even the hint of it, we're tempted to say, oh, well, this, this, this can't be for me. God loves you. <laughs> God loves you. When he wakes up in the morning and he thinks of you, there's a smile on his face. He wants what's absolutely best for you. In fact, famous, famous text here. You, you can help me fill in the blank here. Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper. There's a word, isn't it? Prosper you. Not, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God, when he says, I want you to make disciples, even individually, you as an individual, you, 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 me, he does this because it's a good thing to do. Number two, there's nothing better than knowing Jesus, and therefore it's the greatest gift we can give to another person. If I was going to refer you to a text in the Bible, I would just say, read the Bible to back this up. (laughs) Because this is the point of, of the Bible. Jesus loves us more than life itself. And he came that we might be saved. And the highest thing that we can have in our life is to know Jesus. And therefore, the highest thing that we can help somebody else do, the greatest gift we can give to them, is to help them to know Jesus too. Sometimes... Again, present company accepted. I just got here. I have no one's name in my mind here that I'm, when I'm thinking when I'm about what I'm about to say here. I've heard in other places that sometimes people don't share Jesus because Jesus doesn't mean that much to them. Jesus is culture, not Christ. And so when it comes to, to sharing, well, oh, I mean, that's, that's inconvenient. I'm, I'm not going to do that. But when you know Jesus for who he really is, when you understand, when you have that glimpse of his love and you see that that love is for you, the best thing you can possibly do for someone else is to help them to experience it as well. And number three, number three, this third reason that the Bible gives for why we as individuals should make disciples frankly doesn't get talked about very much. I think I've heard it one time talked about elsewhere. And I'm not saying it's not talked about elsewhere. Maybe just I go to the wrong places. I don't know. It needs more airtime. The third reason is this. There are some things about God that can only be learned when we are actively trying to reach others for Christ. There are some things about God that can only be learned when we are actively trying to reach others for Christ. You say, prove it, preacher, gladly. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus is talking here. Notice it starts, it says, at that time. Let me tell you what that time was, just in case you don't remember. In Luke 10, Jesus has just, uh, he sent out the 72 the 72 followers of Christ, to do ministry, to make disciples, cast out demons, heal people, preach the gospel, tell them the kingdom of God has come. They have just returned from that. They have just returned from making disciples. At that time, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things, these lessons, these things that they've learned about God, hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. This is to his disciples, to the 72, verse 23 and 24. Then he, Jesus, turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Why? Because they were not able to make disciples for Jesus. But after going out and doing so in powerful fashion, these disciples came back and they learned things and they saw things and they heard things about God that you cannot find out any other way unless you are personally actively engaged in helping someone else become a disciple of Jesus. A story. Within the last 20 years, within 10,000 miles of here, I was asked to do a wedding ceremony uh, of a couple that was part of uh, the local uh, amateur motorsport racing community. Now, I mentioned the, the motorsport part. Growing up, I don't remember a time when there wasn't at least one race car in the driveway. Uh, I grew up around amateur motorsport. And uh, so th- these are kind of my people. And uh, when I heard that this couple wanted me to come and perform their wedding ceremony, I thought, hey, you know, praise the Lord. As far as I knew, they had no spiritual interest in anything of any kind. Uh, they were not Adventists. They weren't anything, as far as I knew. And this would be an opportunity. I could share the love of Christ. I could, we, maybe we could plant some seeds. Maybe, you know, maybe, this, maybe this will bear fruit for the kingdom. Maybe they can get to know Jesus too. So appointments made. Uh, we meet at a, a local restaurant. We sit down at the table. And as soon as I sit down, I know that something is wrong with the groom. He, he is not happy. And it appears that his unhappiness is, is aimed at me. And the waitress comes, says, uh, can I get you some drinks to get you started? And I ordered a lemonade, and I don't remember what the, what the bride-to-be ordered, but I do remember what the groom-to-be ordered because he, he elevated the volume of his voice much more than what the waitress needed to hear. And he looked at me and he said, I'll have a beer. Aha. Having been around racing subculture for all of my life, I immediately sensed what was wrong. The groom had not asked me to come and do this. NASCAR aside, clergy are generally not welcome at post-race parties. It's a different world uh, and not necessarily always a good one. And I'm immediately thinking, aha, okay, whoever, whoever asked me it wasn't him. His beer comes, pops it off, drink back a few. Gone. Waitress comes back. Can I take your food order? We order our food. He says, and give me another beer. She brings another beer, pops the top, drowns it back. And he gets straight to it. He leans forward and he points at me with his beer bottle. And he says, let's get one thing straight right from the start. I don't want God to have any part of my wedding. And having been in that community for a while, sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. And so I immediately leaned across the table and looked him straight in the eye and said, well, you're taking a pretty big risk having a Christian pastor come and do your wedding ceremony then, aren't you? (laughs) And now he sat back and he hadn't thought about that possibility. And he thought for a moment, said, I, I can see that, yeah. So, what's the absolute minimum amount that God has to be involved in my wedding? All right, now it's my turn to lean back. I'd never been asked that question before. You know? 
And this was a number of years ago, and, and to be honest, I don't think I gave the right answer. I mean, my, my wheels are, are spinning here, and I know, you know, in, the, in, this, in this little subculture, it doesn't pay to, to look like you don't know what you're doing. And so I, 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 I thought for a moment and got way too practical. I thought, well, what is, what, what, I mean, what do I say? what's the absolute minimum I have to say to make this official? And I told him, I said, well, I need to at least say, by the power vested in me, by the state of, fill in the blank, and as a minister of the gospel, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And he took a drink. He said, okay, I can live with that. And I thought, ah, no, I just painted myself into a corner. What, what am I going to do? Ah, yeah. We finished our, our, our little planning session there. They, they wanted a very short wedding ceremony, and so there wasn't many details. There were some of the details that didn't quite make sense to me, and I thought, oh, I'll ask them later. You know, that's, I, I need to regroup here. So we talked on the phone a couple of times, you know, but those, those things I wasn't quite clear about didn't come up. I forgot about them. The day of the wedding comes. And uh, it was downtown, a large city, and they, they rented a very fancy, swanky hotel there. And I uh, you know, parked down the street. I come up the steps, and my, my sister, who knew this couple, came down the steps, and she said, hey, the bride and groom want you to wear this tie, this necktie. And I looked down, I thought, you know, it's, it's not my first rodeo. I've, I know you wear a tie to weddings, so I've already got it. She said, no, no, they want you to wear this one. And, and I actually brought it with me here today. Um... It's, it's, it's this. Uh, first easy question, what color is it? Okay, it's, it's orange. Okay, can, can you see what's on it? Can you, can you make that out? It's, it's spiders and cobwebs. Okay. For, for a wedding that, that I'm about to preside over, and suddenly, like a ton of bricks, it, it dawns on me, and I look at my watch to see what the date is, and I go, oh, no. It is October 31. This is Halloween. And suddenly it clicks in my mind what they were talking about. The things that I couldn't quite make out, you know, what they're planning for their wedding that didn't quite make sense. I thought, oh no, oh no, oh no. And, and I, I look over my shoulders and I think, oh, I mean, okay, Lord, it's for you. you know, I put it on and I tie my tie. I go inside, and I, and I go to the, the entrance door to the ballroom, and there's the groom. He's nervous. You know, probably already, already had a few. Um, and I uh, said, oh, so we're going to do this, do that, and the other. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, that's what we're going to do. And then I go into the ballroom for the first time. You know how in these, these hotel ballrooms, they, they have these real fancy chandeliers? Well, they, they had those here. They were, they were all covered with these cobwebs, the fake cobwebs, and big spiders were on them. I thought, oh, no, 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 no. And then I looked over at the stage, this low stage where I was supposed to perform this, this wedding, and they had smoke machines. There was smoke that was rolling across the stage, going across like this, okay? And I'm thinking, no, 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 what, what, what have I done? <clears throat> and I, I mean, it's time. It's, t- it's time for them to get married. I go up on the stage, and the groom comes and joins me, and I can't see my feet because there's so much smoke on the stage. <laughs> and the bride comes in, and she is wearing orange. She has an orange gown, and she has this long orange pointed hat on. And I am thinking to myself, if my conference president drives by right now, <laughs> I am so, so fired. This, this is the end. My last act will be to die right here in this macabre setting on Halloween, right? 
So the bride comes up, uh, and uh, I mean, it takes, I don't know, 90 seconds, two minutes max to do this entire ceremony. She, she walks in to bagpipe, bagpipe music, and, and, and I, say, I say a few words, and I say, now by the power vested in me by the state of, and as a minister of the gospel, uh, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And the bagpipes fire up again, and out they go, and, and, and then everybody leaves the room for the purpose that everybody came to the wedding in the first place. Now, those of you with a secular background, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you don't go to weddings to support the bride and groom. That's a distant second place. You go, to, you go for the reception, right, where the wine and, and spirits will be flowing freely. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, they had rented this very nice hall, and, and people were already drinking. In fact, I didn't recognize a lot of the people that were there. They just started at the reception. And the bride and the groom are, are toasting one another. Uh, they have these, these mugs made like skulls with the tops taken off, and they're drinking, and they're, you know, toasting one another. And then they say, uh, Pastor Shane, would you say a few words? Now, time out for just a moment. Here's how the story is supposed to end. I take the microphone and I speak for five minutes and 28 seconds. And at the end of that, people are weeping. They're all sober. They are convicted of their need for a savior. I go upstairs to the hotel pool. We baptize 50 people. And later on, the bride and the groom are also baptized. They become members of the local Seventh-day Adventist church, and today they have worldwide ministries. That's how the story is supposed to end. That's not how it ended. Let me tell you how it ended. Uh, They did ask me to say a few words. Uh, They passed me a cup that very clearly did not have something that was not old in it. Uh, It was fermented. And uh, I, I, to be honest, I don't know what I said. I tried to say something that was reasonably cogent and, and positive and whatnot. I, I mean, I promised the guy, right, I'm not going to preach. <laughs> so I said what I could. I set my cup down. That was awkward because uh, I wasn't going to drink from it. Um, and I tried to make conversation with the people that were around me, but they were too drunk. I mean, that, truly, there, there, was no, there, was, there was no chance of me making spiritual headway. So I left. I left. And at that, in, at that event, in the time before that event, and in the time that I saw them, the handful of times I saw them afterwards, as far as I know, the amount of spiritual headway that I made with them was zero. Nothing. Now, praise the Lord if I'm wrong. I mean, if you're watching this right now, would you call me, please, and let me know that things changed and that you joined the church and that people were baptized? That would be great. As far as I know, there was no spiritual progress. And some, some of you are scratching your head right now and saying, why did you tell us that story? You just, you just got done talking about how Jesus says we're supposed to make disciples, and you tell us that story? No. We're supposed to tell the rosy ones, the ones that, you know, make the covers of magazines and stuff like that. Here's why I tell you that story. Because there are some things about God that you can only learn if you are actively seeking to reach other people for Jesus. For instance, I learned a little bit about God's patience 
I learned a little bit that weekend about what it means to do your best to, 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 to pray and, and to reach out for people who ultimately will say no. I learned a little bit more about what it means to, to do what Jesus did when, when he served other people and they not only said no, but they actively did not want him or what he had to offer. <laughs> and I learned a little bit about the joy that God must feel when the opposite happens, when people say yes. And I learned what it must be like when I say no in various parts of my life to Jesus and his will and the disappointment and the sadness that he must feel. Ladies and gentlemen, until you actively engage in seeking to reach someone else for Jesus Christ, it's all just theory. You will not know completely the heart of God until you dive into that. Jesus is not simply calling us to make disciples that the discipled might be blessed. Oh, they, they, many of them will be. Many of them will say yes, praise the Lord. But whether they say yes or no, the fact of the matter is that you will be blessed because there are some things about God that you can only learn when you're actively seeking to reach someone else for Jesus. And uh, we need to press play again. Can you still see those, those two senior guys standing on the second floor stairwell on the landing, dripping wet uh, with a, a bucket between them? Well, let's go back to that. And this time I want to turn the story somewhat on its head. For a host of reasons, many, many Christians seek to excuse themselves from making disciples of others. Surely, they say, it's not my responsibility. The task belongs to someone else. But if those Christians could just stop for a moment and see themselves as God sees them, you, they would see that they are dripping wet, not with the water from a third floor trash can, but with the blessings of God poured out from heaven. Listen carefully. If you are a Christian, your sins are forgiven. If you are a Christian, you are free in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are never alone. You are never abandoned. You are never out of options because in Christ all things are possible. You have gone from spiritual poverty to spiritual decadence, from being lost to being found, from being blind to being able to see the world through God's eyes. You are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Hear it and hear it well. You are indeed dripping wet with the blessings of God. If you are truly a Christian, you cannot and you will not try to, quote, look dry, embrace how wet you are. Blessings of God are so great that they will and they are meant to overflow, to flood the area around you and thus the conclusion is inescapable. What we have been given, we are now being called to give away. Freely you have received, Jesus said. Now is the time to freely give. It is indeed your responsibility and mine. It is our privilege. It is our joy to make disciples. God has called us to help others make the shot of a lifetime, to know Jesus Christ. And that call goes out to me, to us as a unified campus family, and yes, to even you.